Warning. The following story contains sensitive scenes of suicide and infertility. Listener discretion is advised. The following days involved Abigail getting out of the house. She spent more and more time in the town and doing some yard work around the property. Anything to get herself away from the home and her mind off of whatever happened there. One day, whilst removing some overgrowth from the side of the house, Abigail noticed a small footpath on the edge of the grassy area leading into the forest. Intrigued by this, she followed it away from the house and disappeared into the trees. At the end of the path lay a small wooden shed, completely run down and covered in foliage. A broken wood door was the only thing between Abigail and the inside of the shed. She pushed it open lightly and stepped inside. Upon first glance, it became clear that the shed was used as a woodworking studio. On the center table and along the side counters lay a number of wooden children's toys, like baby blocks, small animals, and even a miniature rocking horse. Again, things meant for a young child, which were clearly never used. Abigail rummaged among the old decrepit shed for anything that might tell more of the story. In the back sat a small wooden desk, with a quill pen sticking up out of an inkwell. Inside one of the desk drawers, Abigail found a leather-bound book, with the initials SW pressed into the cover. She looked inside to find a series of dated entries and quickly discovered this book to be the diary of none other than her great-uncle Samuel Winter. Ripe with excitement, Abigail ran out of the shed, through the field, and into the house, prepared to read everything written in the book. May 15, 1894. This home has been overrun with stress, as the pressure to conceive has become too much to bear. I fear Eloise will run herself into an early grave if she does not become a mother. Her only wish in this short life is to have children, and I will do absolutely everything in my power to make it happen. July 29th, 1894. Our struggle to conceive has carried on for far too long. Four years of marriage has felt like a century of heartache and disappointment. I do love Eloise dearly, and with all my heart, but if something does not happen soon, her distress may very well crush us both. September 17th, 1894. This unwavering pressure to have children has reached new heights. It has surpassed Eloise and I, and now other members of the family are coming forward, asking about arrangements with my wealth in the event a child is not born. Even my own brother, suggesting I find a young mistress to impregnate, 
simply to ward off the troves of distant relatives who may seek a piece of my fortune when I die. Is there no compassion in this family? Is money the only thing people care about? December 6th, 1894. Today is a most joyous day in our big empty home. God has smiled upon us and blessed Eloise with the gift of life. Finally, there is warmth in this house, and we can now start the family we have always wanted. I have never been so happy in all my life. February 21st, 1895. Eloise has begun to show in her stomach, and the first visible sign of our new child brings me so much joy. Ever since the news of Eloise's pregnancy, I have been hard at work building furniture and toys for the nursery. I count the days until I can see the baby asleep in its crib, sitting on its rocking horse and taking its first steps. A life of fatherhood is one I welcome with open arms. May 10th, 1895. Eloise's stomach has now gotten quite big and the doctor says everything is good and normal. The happiness in her eyes makes me proud to be her husband, and her excitement for motherhood can't be contained either. She has sewn enough garments to clothe an entire nation of infants. We've even come up with names. Judith for a girl, and Joseph for a boy. The baby is expected in early August, and neither of us can wait for the blessed day. June 1st, 1895. Today, a most horrible thing has happened. Early this morning, Eloise awoke to unbearable pains in her stomach. And when she got up to go to the washroom, felt the warm sensation of blood run down her legs and onto the floor. The doctor arrived shortly after and announced to us that the baby was lost. The shriek which came from Eloise's mouth is one I will never forget, and the tears which came after, I'm afraid will never end. Why must God be so cruel as to give us the hope we have always yearned for, just to take it away at the last moment? I fear this tragedy is one we may never recover from. August 10th, 1895. Once again, our house is cold, void of happiness or anything which brings joy. Stress has returned, and again life has become a frantic mess. Family have come forward to offer their condolences, as well as financial advice neither of which I care for. Eloise's grief has turned her into a blank slate, and I worry for her greatly. October 11th, 1895. Our relentless attempts at conception have continued to prove unsuccessful. Eloise has begun to lose hope, and so have I. May 25th, 1896. Reasons to continue on this path to parenthood are dwindling, as it seems the journey will never end. 
Eloise has lost all passion for living. Her attitude has become quite contagious. December 31st, 1897. The past two years have been full of nothing but sorrow and misery. Eloise can no longer look me in the eyes. Her silence holds a tight grip around my heart. She has expressed her willingness to end this nightmare. And tonight we shall. There is no reason to go on like this. That was the final passage in the notebook, with the last pages being left blank. Samuel's concluding message put a harrowing sensation in Abigail's bones, as the fate of her great aunt and uncle was clearly more grim than she had imagined. That night, Abigail went to sleep in the master bedroom. Another layer of sadness shrouded the home, and it was apparent that these walls had experienced much. She had trouble falling asleep, as she tossed and turned for hours in the bed, unable to rest or relax. Late into the night, the bedroom door slowly crept open, and a presence entered the room. She felt it immediately, and all the hair on her body stood up straight. This presence crept along the floor and toward the bed. It ran up by the headboard and hovered just above Abigail. She was completely aware of everything that was happening and sensed the cold spirit floating right over her body. Fright did not overtake Abigail in this moment, even though she felt as if she should be terrified. Deep sadness and pain took its place as the calm spirit focused intently on Abigail. She knew intuitively that this spirit was that of Eloise Winter, and that it came to speak to her communicating in a language not bound by words. The celestial message conveyed by Eloise gave Abigail new perspective, and the spirit slowly drifted toward the window. Abigail opened her eyes and was drawn at once to the window, as if being summoned silently by something outside. She looked out, to find a ghostly white woman at the edge of the grassy field. It was none other than her great aunt, Eloise Winter, beckoning her to follow. Abigail went outside and walked across the field, with dewy grass gracing the bottoms of her feet as she did so. Before reaching the edge of the field, Eloise's spirit began walking down the path which led to the shed. Abigail hurried to follow, as she continued past the shed and deeper into the woods. Further down the path was a small clearing, and by the time Abigail reached it, the spirit was gone. In the clearing sat two headstones, Samuel and Eloise Winter, date of death on both stones being December 31st, 1897. 
Abigail wept to see those two names side by side, knowing how difficult their final years were. Her heart broke as tears rolled down her face, and the intrinsic wonder of her family history was shattered by the cruelness of reality. The next day was Abigail's last at the estate. She made it a point to find out exactly what happened to her great aunt and uncle. She went to the library and asked if they had any local newspaper articles from 1897 or 1898. She then mentioned Samuel and Eloise Winter. And the old librarian knew exactly what she came looking for. Read for yourself, she said. And Abigail did. The film roll contained a local newspaper, dated January 2nd, 1898. The headline on the front page read, Couple Found Dead at Winter Estate. The article detailed how the two were found side by side in the master bedroom, holding hands after taking a lethal dose of morphine. This was clearly an event which shook the local community, but not in the ways it should have. Most of the article consisted of what was to happen to Samuel's vast fortune and assets, which Abigail learned was divided fairly evenly among the other family members. It seemed that the focus of everyone's attention was on Samuel's wealth, and not the personal struggle him and Eloise endured. It became clear that the family archive ended with Samuel and Eloise. Not because the family ended, but because everyone lost interest when they got his money. Some of the winters stayed in England, while others went abroad, to places like Australia and America. It seemed that what they had gained in financial means, they had lost in family identity and became fragmented as a result. Abigail went back to the estate for her final night there and dwelt on all the information she had gathered during this time. She felt proud to be a winter, proud of her family's greatest achievements and saddened by their harshest downfalls. It was all quite much to process how her family history managed to influence her so greatly, but also how little of an effect these momentous events would have on her life. Abigail went to sleep that night in the master bedroom, unafraid of what ghosts may be stirring from the past. She closed her eyes and felt peace in her heart, no longer entranced by whatever came before, but optimistic about everything that was to come next. Daylight flooded every room of the grand winter home as the driver pulled up to fetch Abigail and bring her away. He helped put her bags in the car and they drove off down the long gravel driveway. Abigail looked back and gazed across the grassy field at the large empty house, getting smaller and smaller. She said goodbye and thank you to the beautiful estate 
as they drove through the short wooded area and out the front gate. Abigail was glad to know her family history and respected the story of each and every ancestor, but decided right in that moment she would no longer dwell on the past and she would write her own narrative, one that she would be proud of, regardless of its obstacles or obscurity. Abigail Winter was her name, and this was the beginning of her story. <laughs>